Hello, welcome to the Trustworthy AI podcast from Truera, the leading provider of AI quality diagnostic and monitoring software. I'm Shamik Kundu, Head of Financial Services and Chief Strategy Officer at Truera. And in this series, I'll speak to leading AI practitioners to demystify the concept of trustworthy AI. Focusing initially on financial services, I'll uncover the real extent of AI adoption in the industry today, the importance of building trust and practical ways of getting there. My guest today is Ansgar Kone, Global AI Ethics and Regulatory Leader at EY. Ansgar, based in London, focuses his work on the development of design and regulatory tools to maximize the beneficial use of technology and to minimize negative consequences on people and society. Ansgar has a multidisciplinary research background, having worked and published on topics such as algorithmic policy and governance, data privacy, AI ethics and standards, and experimental human behavior perception studies. Ansgar holds an MSc in Electrical Engineering and a PhD in Computational Neuroscience. In today's session, we'll get Ansgar's take on AI ethics and how that varies, or does not, from ethics in business more broadly. We'll get a European expert's perspective on the draft EU AI law proposed in April this year, a consultant's perspective on how clients worldwide are building up their trustworthy AI capabilities, and an academic's perspective on making the transition to industry. Ansgar, it is great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Shmeek. Great to be on the call. I wanted to start with your job title, which has AI ethics in it. What exactly is AI ethics? Is it different from data ethics or indeed from just plain ethics in business? That's a good question. AI ethics, it really focuses on broader thinking around how we are using AI. And the term AI is being used quite broadly, uh, often to include data analytics in a broad sense. It is different from data ethics because it focuses more on the question about how we are using the data, the analysis and the outcomes of that analysis. A big part of AI ethics is thinking about, should we be using this tool in this particular kind of context? What is our justification for the choices that we make when we build analytics methodology that uses machine learning or not, doesn't really matter that much, but really, why are we optimizing for X instead of optimizing for Y? Have we truly understood who the impacted parties are going to be from the work that we're doing? And do we understand how they will respond to the way in which our system is working? Can we appropriately explain the way in which the system operates, the way in which we made our choices, the justifications for those choices? Is everything that we are doing around the way in which we use data, the way in which we draw conclusions from the data, is all of that aligned with the values that we stand for? So it is strongly connected to business ethics. And in order for it to operate properly, it needs to be included in our bigger picture of thinking around ethics as an organization. But it does focus on the specific questions that arise from using a technology in the data, in the decision-making space that offers up certain kinds of recommendations, which may be decisions depending on how you use those recommendations. It may do that in a way that doesn't exactly follow a human logic, a human intuition of how you got from input data to an output. Thank you, Ansgar. That was very useful as an introduction. Perhaps if you could illustrate this with a real life example in terms of what AI ethics could mean. Sure. So there's a case not long ago, 
might, might actually still be ongoing in Austria, for instance, where the uh, government was looking at using machine learning and other sort of automated decision-making processes to assess whether people who are in the job-seeking pipeline, whether they should qualify for additional support or whether more or less they're considered to be a lost cause and, and it would be a waste of money to really invest in them. And the introduction of that system raised a lot of red flags, primarily because it wasn't at all clear really what the underlying logic was for how particular people would be classified into these different groups. But in a broader picture, even the idea of is it appropriate to do this kind of an assessment? Is it appropriate to lump somebody based on certain historical or, or other demographic kind of factors into a group that you would say, well, we're not actually going to be putting a lot of effort into supporting them any further. And to do that through an automated system where the person hasn't had a chance to really make their case, where the person is being analyzed only based on a certain set of data points that might not really capture the wider human factors behind this through a system that doesn't understand humans because it isn't a human itself. It raised a number of those typical AI ethics questions around bias. How was it assessed to see whether certain subpopulations might be more negatively impacted than others? What was the justification behind a lot of the optimization criteria that are going into it? a lack of explanation to people, questions around the data that was being used, was that potentially going to touch on privacy concerns? And the fundamental one around human agency and human dignity being disrespected, basically, by having an automated system that people didn't know why they got this choice. They didn't have a clear way of raising concerns. And just basically, they were being treated as a number, as opposed to being treated as a human. That's really fascinating, Ansgar, because I think what I heard you talk about are probably at least at three different levels. There's a concern around, is the algorithm doing the right job, which comes from everything from the data used and the logic and so on, right? There's a concern around whether the human impacted is being given enough transparency and enough opportunity to get redress. And then there's almost a philosophical concern about whether a human being should ever be exposed to a decision by a non-human on something so deserving of empathy. That's, that's really fascinating, very illuminating indeed. Maybe moving a little bit to your client work, as you think back to some of your most advanced clients in the adoption of artificial intelligence, what do you think are they doing practically to make trustworthy AI or ethical AI a reality? And are there some early mistakes that they've made which others can learn from? What we're seeing among the leading groups, uh, organizations in this space is, first of all, they are putting in place procedures, processes within the way in which their data science team handles the data and creates the models. They are putting in place a recognition that there needs to be uh, an assessment around these ethical issues that we discussed just a minute ago, and that this is something that should be an important component of saying this system is ready for operation, that you cannot simply put this as a last minute tick box kind of exercise. The challenge that we've seen and where 
I would say probably most of the, the stumbling blocks have been in getting ready to this has been around where do we slot this in? Early attempts have tried to say, well, we'll just make this part of what the data engineers are doing. Give them a certain tool to look at bias or something like that, and that's okay. But that didn't really work sufficiently because it didn't connect it to the whole operating model of the organization. You need to have clarity that the data and the AI ethics parts are part of the bigger picture of how we as an organization operate. If you look at that split between those who are looking at AI ethics or trustworthy AI as a separate thing in itself versus those who are looking to embedded into the broader organizational framework. Is there a clear winner now? I mean, is, is the received wisdom now that it should be done in the latter way or is it still juries out there? It's easy to look at the ethics question in its separation if you are simply looking at it from the point of view of we want to establish our ethical principles. But if you then get into the stage where you're saying, okay, but now we have principles, how are we actually going to translate those into practice, into operational use, then you naturally come into the point where you see we need to be integrating this into this. Because if we have a separate ethics board that flags something up, but there is no process for actually integrating this into the way in which we operate, there is no way in which to capture issues that have been raised at an early stage and address them in the way in which the actual model is being built, then you just end up with knowing that there is a problem, but not being able to address it. So it's really, once you get into the translating principles into practice, you more or less naturally arise at the point where you recognize we need to be integrating this into our workflow. It's similar really to what we see in things like cybersecurity. If you try to do cybersecurity at the end, yeah. if you're building the whole system and then at the end you're saying, okay, so we are the potential attack vectors, it is much more challenging to address the actual problems than if you were to be thinking through the potential security vulnerabilities as you are building the system. Thinking about the framework and the principles separately is perhaps all right, but when it comes to translating those into practice, it is essential to embed it into existing organizational frameworks. That's very helpful. Now, you're sitting in the UK, which arguably is still in Europe, even if it's not in the European Union. Now, at least outside the European Union, certainly there's a huge amount of interest in this new European Commission Draft AI Act, which came out in April this year. And it does talk quite a bit about moving from principles to practice, because, of course, they had published the principles two years ago in the Trustworthy AI Principles. I'd love to get your take on that. Can this draft EU AI Act do for trustworthy AI what GDPR did for privacy a few years back? The AI Act is an important piece of proposed legislation. It is rightfully attracting a lot of attention also from outside of the EU and probably will have an impact at the level of the GDPR, but potentially in a slightly different way. Because the biggest sort of reason why it is attracting so much attention is because it is the first piece of truly AI-oriented legislation, where AI is the focus of the piece of legislation. One of the reasons why it's attracting so much attention is because everybody wants to see, is what the EU is doing going to work? Is that something that we 
should copy, could copy, or is this a test that will show us, ah, okay, don't do that. <laughs> Maybe we should do something else. Because it is the first in the space, it is both very interesting and potentially exciting, if you find legislation exciting. But obviously, the first one out is going to occasionally make a misstep left or right. We see this, for instance, around the questions of, is the broad definition of AI that the legislation is using, is that a good approach to take or not? If you're saying, well, we don't really care that the definition is so broad that it could arguably be considered to be touching on anything that a software because the secondary part is, is the intended use something that would actually raise concerns around risk. And therefore, if you have a piece of software that doesn't have a attended use that is high risk, then it doesn't really matter whether it's covered by the legislation and vice versa. Even if you have a piece of software that isn't machine learning, that isn't what something that you would call AI, but it is high risk, then arguably, shouldn't it be covered? Shouldn't the same concerns apply to this? I mean, we are concerned about these things because they have an impact on safety, they have an impact on the quality of life and society, not because it is AI, so to speak. So that that's an interesting question. Is a broad definition of AI for this kind of a piece of legislation, is that the good approach to take or should you be taking a, a more narrow one? It will have a big impact like GDPR did, but it might not be the case that it will be directly copied and followed in the way that GDPR was. It might be that the impact is more a learning experience for everybody in how to approach dealing with AI regulation. And your view is, unlike with GDPR, instead of cutting and pasting the EU Draft Act, other parts of the world will probably wait and pick the things that are working, things that are not. I mean, one thing I do note is that the Chinese government, various departments in the Chinese government have been coming up in parallel with their own versions. And in some cases, surprisingly, they are getting stricter than the EU draft law. So it's going to be an interesting space looking at how different regulations converge or not in this space. It's also important, of course, if you are looking at the AI Act and even considering to copy-paste things, that it is part of a bigger patchwork of legislation around digital. Various people have criticized the AI Act for not sufficiently addressing power imbalances with effective monopolies in sort of through network effects in, in the digital space. But that's because it's too narrow a look at one piece of legislation. There's different legislation being proposed around that kind of factor. So it is important to recognize if you wanted to copy-paste from the AI Act, you may also have to copy-paste from other pieces of legislation. Moving slightly away from the regulation to the people on the ground who are involved, uh, the data scientists who are building predictive models, for example. Now, one of the questions I often get from data scientists who, at least in my past life, as part of a regulated industry, banking, was, look, it's so difficult to think about all these laws. Why should I even work in a regulated industry? Shouldn't I just focus on a company or, or an industry like, I don't know, digital-only e-commerce or social media firm where I can build cool models rather than worrying about the governance stuff? I would say, for one thing, what we discussed earlier, AI ethics is parts of the bigger ethics of your organization. I would hope that the firm, even if it is not in a strictly regulated space, is still going to follow pretty much all of the fundamentals of what you see in the regulated space, because this is part of 
being a good business, good both in the service that you provide, but also to the people that are working within your organization. So as such, I would hope that you won't find too much of a difference because if you do, it might not really be a good place to be working from a personal point of view. It's also a question about how do you see your own responsibility versus the way in which what you build is impacting on society. And you know, working in the regulated space, yes, it may potentially be frustrating at times this cool new idea that you came up with cannot be implemented in that particular form directly, that you need to be thinking about how to fit it in into those regulations. But the regulations exist for a reason. They are there to help to manage the systems, to make sure that they actually increase the beneficial and minimize the negative consequences of the system. And as such, you can look at them instead, perhaps just as another design constraint, another design challenge include into your work practices. Potentially, you may say these are interesting things, but I want to first find my feet in being able to develop these systems without having to deal with the other additional challenges. Potentially, yes, but hopefully, even while you're doing that, you are still thinking about the consequences of what you are doing. And if this is an unregulated space, most of the time that is because the consequences of doing getting something wrong there aren't that significant and it should be fine. I would certainly hope that you're not just looking to avoid a regulated space because you disagree with the need for making sure that um, everybody gets uh, treated fairly. Indeed. So I hear three different arguments. First is this particular one, which is actually everybody should be interested, irrespective of whether you are in regulated industries or not. I think the second one, you make an important point. You know, one of the reasons regulated industries are regulated is because the impact of what you are doing can be much higher. Yes, it carries responsibilities, but it also means that the end outcome of what you do, for example, extending financial inclusion to people who've never had that before, is much broader, and that's meaningful in its own right. And then the last thing is, of course, as you said, you know, it's it's also these challenges are also opportunities for self-development, for being able to work out how to build something with new constraints. And in the spirit of continuous development, I think many data scientists would probably like that challenge. Staying on the personal, I mean, you yourself have made quite an interesting shift. You've had a rich academic career and you've moved into your current role from there. What's driven the shift? And, it, and it's two years since you joined the quote-unquote business side. How has your own thinking evolved in this space? Where has your thinking shifted as you moved away from academics into advising businesses on how they do some of these things? Indeed, it's been an interesting development and, and not something that I had planned. It actually really came through a project that we were doing, a collaboration project between the University of Nottingham, where I was, and Oxford and Edinburgh on bias and algorithmic systems. And that was actually through standards and the connection that in that space I was starting to make with industry players that I made the connection with EY. Standards is an interesting space because it sort of sits a bit between regulation and self-regulation industry. And if operating well, it should be taking in from the leading edge of what is happening in the development, because you want to be developing the clear definitions, the clear procedures, best practices as soon as possible so that we don't end up with having a disjointed space and then having to recombine it into a standardized, organized work practices. 
joining industry, it's been interesting because you do start to see more of how actually these technologies are being used in practice and the particular kinds of challenges. And for instance, if you're looking at it purely from an academic space, actually, I was engaging more with civil society than with industry at that time. You are focused quite a lot on sort of the trust deficits from the point of view of how do individual citizens see that. But you weren't really seeing the importance of trust in these technologies from the point of view of just a business deciding whether or not they want to be implementing this system, whether or not they feel confident that using it isn't going to cause problems internally, or the business-to-business kind of space and, and the communications and relationships that are built in that kind of uh, domain. So it's been uh, really interesting for me, an interesting journey. And I think I definitely have gained a lot from being able to work in this space and still have a foothold in the academic space as well, and being able to combine these in order to bring a fuller picture of the issues, how they're being seen from the different sides, and that it isn't just a case of industry wants to make as much money as possible, so they're just going to try to avoid regulations as much as possible. But they actually have certain interests in having a well-regulated space themselves as well, because you want to feel secure in in the way in which you are using systems yourself. That's very interesting. Lastly, if you look at the next three to five years, what are the uses of AI or just data more broadly, if that's what you'd like, that you're most excited about? Where do you think AI and data can make the most difference to us as humanity or or in in specific industries? So I'm quite interested in seeing how some of these methods like reinforcement learning and, and so forth are now starting to transition from being used in a game kind of space like AlphaGo was into a space where we're seeing applications that are going to have significant impact on the real world, like AlphaFold, that kind of transitioning over of the core methodology developed in a space where people can say, well, that's cool, but who really cares? To a space where, well, this is potentially going to have an impact on people's lives. There is still a case to be made to say there's too much investment and development going into things that aren't addressing the big problems in the world, that the venture capital space, for instance, is more focused on investing into products that will produce a financial gain at the end, as opposed to products that are going to address the big problems in the world. Maybe these will also change a bit as we are seeing the way in which public investment is changing and those kinds of things. It's still a very vibrant space, AI. Moving also to using other methods, not just focusing purely on deep learning, which has been hugely influential and very valuable for a lot of pattern recognition kinds of things. But if you want to move into a different kind of space, you need to be thinking broader. There's still so much to learn also if we are continuing to explore the similarities and differences between the biological brain and the AI systems that we are using, it is still very much the case that AI is and artificial networks are inspired by the brain. They are not like the brain. (laughs) Um, There's still so much more complexity in the actual biological brain. Ansgar, it is fitting that you finish the podcast on your PhD topic around computational neuroscience. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You've given us a real tour across from AI ethics to 
practical things that companies can do to career advice for data scientists, to the regulatory landscape in Europe and beyond, and your own personal journey, and finally on where you see exciting things happening ahead. That has been a fantastic session. Really appreciate your time on this podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this interesting. For more information, please swipe on the cover art. You can follow Truera on LinkedIn and Twitter or visit our website for future podcasts in this series as we continue to look at different aspects of building trust in AI. Thank you. Thank you.